Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 170 of Yoga Land. Today, my guest is Sean Korn. Sean is an internationally acclaimed yoga teacher and a public speaker known for her social activism. She's been teaching for more than 25 years, and she has a new book called Revolution of the Soul. Sean and I talk about that book today, and I can't recommend the book highly enough. It's filled with her insights and her hilarious stories and her meaningful stories and also exposition about yoga. So it really can appeal to any level of student or practitioner or teacher. And there are very few books out there that will talk about getting Shaktipat from a bee sting. It's pretty amazing. I'm grateful to Sean for sharing so much of herself with all of her students, with all of us. She's just incredibly generous in that way. And one of my favorite parts about the book is how she just explains her very broad approach to healing, that it just took many different modalities and many different people coming in and out of her life and people who she sought out and worked really hard with to get to the place where she is now. So we talk about some of those interesting characters in the podcast today. Enjoy it. So the first thing I want to ask you, I noticed at the end of the book, I'm sort of starting at the end, but you thanked Tammy Simon, who is the, I think she's the owner of Sounds True, right? Who is the publisher. What prompted you to write this book? Did you always want to write a book or did did she approach you? How did you decide to, to get it started? Oh God, I did not want to write a book at all. Um, it's actually one of the things that I've talked about a lot on the tour because the book is so much about reframing your narratives and and confronting limiting beliefs and moving towards the resistance and vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And the three and a half years that it took me to write this book were so emotionally and psychologically and spiritually and practically challenging. And I knew it was going to be hard but I did not know what it was going to excavate within mm. me and some of the personal challenges that I was going to go through in that process. But I must have known on some intuitive level because over the years, people have asked me to write a book and I would just, you know, I would say, yeah, sure, I'll get around to it, knowing full well that there was no way in hell I was going to ever write a book. Like I had some really sincere limiting beliefs that I wasn't smart enough. I wasn't organized enough. I didn't have enough content. And so I just kind of resisted. And I remember thinking that everything I teach, like I said, is about, it's about looking to be in service to something bigger than yourself and never allowing your own limiting beliefs to block you from being able to participate in social change. Like that would all be about ego. So I knew eventually that for me to walk my talk, I was going to have to move towards that resistance. And when I was around 48, which is five years ago, I also recognized that I, my role in the yoga community was going to begin to shift, that I was going to have to take on a different role of leadership, of mentorship, the way in which when I was a younger student teacher, there were older teachers and especially Mm -hmm. women who helped to usher me on my path. As my teachers and mentors are aging out or dying or retiring or not as available, I just recognized 
my role was going to have to shift. So I started to work with some older women leaders in the community, asking them about what I needed to let go of and what I was going to need to pull in in order for me to step into that role. And all of them kept saying the same thing, write a book. I thought they were saying it because, you know, that was just like this, a milestone or a rite of passage, but it wasn't like that at all. I think that they recognized that many of the answers to my questions around letting go of limiting beliefs was going to show up in the process of writing a book and that I needed to go through something as intensive as that. So Tammy Simon, she's been writing me for years to write one. And I remember thinking back to when I was a young teacher, all the opportunities I would have to subclasses. And there was always this voice in my head that I could hear myself say, uh, I can't, I'm not ready. I'm not skilled enough. But another part of my head would say, Sean, if you say no to this, you're going to say no to every opportunity. What is the worst thing that's going to happen? You're going to make a fool of yourself. You know, you're going to feel the humiliation. And I'm like, all right, but is that enough of a reason to stop you from actually being in service? And that's the same thing I had when Tammy was offering me this deal was if I say no to this opportunity, I will continue to say no. And I will live in that fear that there's something in the yes that I have to discover, even if it terrifies me. And it did. Mm. And so that was really why I finally said yes to it, because I just knew I was going to do a deep dive into my own psyche that would help me to mature. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it was harder than I thought it was going to be. Why anyone actually writes is a mystery to me, (laughs) Uh, especially if you've done it once. And now you're really, you know, that they go back and do it a second time is I I'm still like baffled because the process was so intimate and intense and vulnerable. And now that I'm on the other side of it, I've never been more grateful. Uh Like you're done. (laughs) Like, yay, I did it. I'm done. Not just that. Mm -hmm. I'm so grateful because of how deep I went and what I was, I was able to accomplish and the fears that did get excavated. And while I was in it, it was so awful, Mm. but on the other side of it, the wisdom, the maturity, the, the pride that I have in having to thrust myself into that process is a gift that I will never, ever ever be able to truly forget. And I'm grateful to Tammy and for all my students and my mentors for encouraging me to go into that process and me not talking myself out of it Mm -hmm. because my life is forever more changed having written. Yeah. Whether it's good or not, that's like kind of secondary. It was really the process that I had to go through that was life-changing. That's amazing. That's great. Well, it is a great book and I'm not just saying that. (laughs) I completely relate to what you were saying about just feeling like 
I, I just can't write a book. I can't, you know, people have asked me too. And I, I'm like, I, I'm not, my life has not been that amazing. You know, I'm just a normal person or whatever it is. All those, like you said, all those limiting beliefs come up. And I actually also can believe that it was a really intense process for you because you share the real shit. Like you share this, the hard stuff that happened, has happened over the course of your life, which we all have, but it's still hard to talk about. I think it's like very notable in your book that you share the real raw stuff because there is a certain amount of, there's just a certain amount of bypassing in the yoga community. There's a certain amount of presenting oneself as aspirational at all times. And I think when you're a successful teacher, there's also like a feeling of pressure about being in this sort of perfected state at all times. And I know that just I appreciated reading it. When you describe yourself as a young person, when you go to your first yoga class and you roll out of bed and you've got like mascara smeared under your eyes and you forget to put on a bra, I related to that so well. I was a mess in my 20s, you know? And so I know other people will really appreciate that too. I was really impressed by the the level of detail of your memories of a lot of these chapters. How did you actually just start? Like, I think people will, there's so many people would be so curious about that. Did, did Tammy give you some direction? Did you talk through it with her first or yeah? Like, how did you, how did you actually just get started? Oh God. No, I didn't have any direction. Here's what happened. So it was December 26th is when I finally decided I was going to write that, this book. So almost four years ago. And I take four months off my first sabbatical in 17 years, because I knew that if I was on the road, I would procrastinate and I wouldn't be able to do it. And I needed, I'm very disciplined, but it has to be kind of organized. So I decided to take time off. I opened up my computer and I did first what I always do, which is like, I just prayed. And I remember thinking when I finished my prayer and the prayer is actually in the book, uh, except I changed the the eyes and the me's to the we and the hour to make it more inclusive. And it's not the exact same prayer, but it's close. But I remember praying to help me to, to confront my limits and beliefs, to help me to step into a new level of maturation, to give me the strength to open myself to the levels of vulnerability that are needed in order to explore what inside out social change is going to look like. And after I finished my prayer, I thought, oh, what did I just do? Because I knew that it opened a portal because God's going to give me everything. He's going to answer that prayer Mm -hmm. or it's going to answer that prayer. And, but it's going to come up in, I'm going to have to earn it. I'm going to have to, if I'm asking to transform my limited beliefs then I have to confront my limited beliefs. Mm. So a part of me was like, okay, here we go. And then I started to type. And for that day, it was effortless. Mm. The words flew through me in a way it was so unexpected. And I thought, why was I so scared? This is in my body. This is like, I've been prepping for this for 30 years. Every sentence was perfection. Every paragraph was poetic. And I'm thinking, I don't even need an editor. This is so good. I get to the end of the day. I I put my computer uh, down and I think to myself, and I'm done. Like I finished an entire book in eight hours. (laughs) Wow. <laughs> What's very well aware of is that I wrote maybe 8,000 words and I'm under contract for 90,000. Yeah, that's a lot of words, but not a book. Yeah. It's a pamphlet. 
And, but that's all I had. Like I was really well aware. I just wrote everything, everything I believe, my entire philosophy. It's all right there. And I got really scared because the next thing I thought, which became pretty much, I feel like in some ways it became my mantra for the next three and a half years, which was, I don't know what to do next. Mm -hmm. Like I just did not know what to do. Hmm. And I remember thinking, all right, how do I teach? You've got the you've got the muscles, you've got the bones, but you've got to bring it all together. You've got to connect the fascia, the ligaments, the connective tissue. Then you've got to bring in, then there's the breath and then there's prayer. Like how do you create an experience? So I thought, okay, I've got the skeleton. Now what's, where are the muscles? And so I circled every word that I figured I was going to have to expand upon. And that was like yoga, breath, Mm. sutras, mind-body connection, trauma, God, forgiveness, justice, privilege, power, accountability, action. And I spent the next year researching each of those words and putting together document after document just to amass information. Hmm. And again, no one taught, no one told me how to do this. I just was, it just worked for me. And at the end of the year, I had about a hundred thousand words, but when I would read it, it was me telling people what the transformative journey would look like. And here are the tools and the actionables and the science and the theories, but there was no heart. Hmm. No, nothing embodied, and there wasn't anything where I was showing them. And I've often said in a yoga class when I teach, if I don't feel it, the room doesn't feel it. That if I'm not at the edge of my own vulnerability, it's hard to get the students to trust my facilitation. There, I need to put myself into the experience, whether they're aware of it or not. But there, it's just something I've always done in my teaching that I know has been effective. And I thought. I've got to bring me into this. So I went back to my pamphlet and re- was rereading it. And I remember the very first sentence, which didn't make it into the book, but my very first sentence freaked me out. And I knew immediately what was going to have to happen. My first sentence was, my name is Cece. Hmm. And why that's significant is, a, you know, my name is Sean, of course, and that's my birth name and my legal name. But the name in which my family and my friends growing up called me was not Sean. Most people didn't even know my birth name was Sean until I was um, graduated high school and it was in the yearbook. Hmm. But Cece is the name in which is, is how I identified. And then that was the moment I got really scared because I realized that I was writing the book as Sean. And I'm going to talk about myself in third person, which is kind of weird, but Sean has mentorship and training and guidance and decades of therapy and and a lot of wisdom. If I teach the book as Sean, I wear the cloak of identification from a distance. Whereas Cece didn't have mentorship or guidance or wisdom. What she had was childhood sexual abuse, trauma, obsessive compulsive disorders, issues with anxiety and cutting, issues with drugs and alcohol. Now, simultaneously, I did not have a, I had an amazing childhood, tons of friends, was Mm -hmm, funny mm -hmm. as all fuck, like both were true at the same time, but Cece had a lot of pain. 
And I thought, oh my God, I cannot write this book from the point of view of Sean, not the entire time. I've got to show the messy and perfect journey of transformation through my own experience. But it means I have to go back and I can't tell it from a place of distance. It's got to be in present time. And so I spent the next year writing these narratives from the point of view of Cece to a certain point, because of course I shift and I become, you know, I become Sean, but it can't be told from that place at first. And that was really, really hard. And so what I did was just spent about a year and a half writing narratives. Some of these narratives I've been sharing in class for many years, but not to the degree in which I unpacked it in the book. Mm -hmm. Now, the thing you're talking about in terms of the details, I have something that's called episodic recall. Hmm. It's kind of a clinical term, meaning that I've been able to do this all my life. It's something that my mother likes to do with me. Like, for example, she'll say to me out of nowhere, she'll say, you're wearing a white dress. There's yellow strawberries on it. We're in a room with black and white wallpaper. The phone rings. And from those very few prompts, I can begin to recall very specific dialogue. A scenario will begin to play out, but I'm not yet two years old. Wow. And so once you give me sensory prompts, I can enter into a world. Now, I can't remember what happened yesterday, but my memory, when you give me these prompts, become very acute, including dialogue. Well because I had never really written before, I did not realize how deep and also how traumatic writing would be for me because I'd be writing along. And then like, for example, in chapter, I think it's chapter five. It's my one lie in the book. There's a line where I talk about the green shag rug felt uh, self Mm -hmm. on my feet, something like that. Mm -hmm. The green shag rug was never soft. It was rough, very, very rough, but it's attached to my, to my molestation. So when I was writing that particular scene and was remembering the house and I put myself back in the house and I put myself back on that rug, as soon as I remembered the texture of the rug, all this dialogue, all this, these subtle details came rushing back to me. It was very, very difficult but I had to live with the roughness of that rug for a very long time until I finally finished the book and I went through it and was like fine tuning the edits. What was taken away from me in my childhood was agency over my body as well as agency over my narrative in a lot of ways. What I have as a 53 year old, 53 year old woman is agency over my story. I get to tell like what I want and what I don't want. So when I decided to edit the book, I needed to sever my relationship with that rough carpet Hmm. so that I could just kind of move on. So I changed that word from rough to soft, just so that when I had to read the story publicly, I didn't let myself get tripped up and re-enter the story in the way that I had in the writing of it. And so that's why some of the details, the clothing, the certain certain sensory imagery is so specific is because of this thing that I have yeah yeah um, where I can go into recall hmm. and so writing the narratives I spent a lot of time in therapy 
spent a lot of time in, in dialogue with members, with my family to help to process it. I wrote the narratives at first in past tense so that I could just titrate my nervous system hmm. to it and then rewrote it in present tense later on in the process because that was just really, that was just real difficult because I had to be in it again. I had to live it. And I had to make a commitment that I had to write everything, but I didn't have to print anything. And so by the time I got to the part of the process, I got to decide what went in and what stayed out, but I needed to get it all out. Yeah. Yeah. So that's really what the the creative journey was for me. And then knowing I didn't want to write an autobiography because it's just, that's, it's not that there's anything wrong with it, but it, I'm a teacher. It's what I do. Yeah. And so I came up with the idea of writing the narratives and then at the end of each narrative, the narrative is complete in and of itself. It has a beginning, middle and end. And then the sec, the sub part of the chapter is me at the age I am now saying, here's what was actually happening. Here are the tools. Here's the process. Here's the theories, the science that I can see in hindsight that I couldn't have been cognizant to at that time, even though the universe was already conspiring to bring me wisdom. But when you're in it, you can't know it. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to set the chapters up where I can be both Cece and Sean in the same chapter and show the messiness and the reconciliation and help people see that within themselves. Yeah. Well, I I really love the structure. Um, It's really fascinating to hear how naturally it came about. And I, I just think it makes it a very unique yoga book because it's not only memoir and it's not only, like you said, sort of from a distance teaching. That structure that you did, you combine it so seamlessly. And so you tell the story. And like, I'm just such a believer that we learn through stories. That's how we learn. Yeah. We remember learning through hearing other people's stories. So it's like you tell the story and then you reinforce the teaching in the next section and you unpack the teaching a little bit more. So, I mean, your guides created like you created like a brilliant, brilliant structure. Thank you. You said that you did a lot of therapy while you were writing and processed a lot with your family. I thought it was really courageous of you to talk about the molestation the way that you did. Like, did your family know about it before you wrote the book or did you have to like confront that with them so that they would be prepared? No, my family all knew, you know, that's something that's been part of our, like just family knowledge for years and years and super supportive. And I, I, you know, I came from a really open household that way. So I had a lot of support growing up, which is probably why I'm not as deeply wounded Hmm. by my childhood experiences, because I did have a family that held that for me and helped me walk through it. It was more though, just being so public with it, Mm -hmm. without setting an enormous amount of context I just knew would make my family feel a little vulnerable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, they want, you know, I didn't want anyone to think, well, where were her parents? You know, what was going on? And I wanted to protect them in that way. But now my dad's dead. So like, yeah, he's obviously, I didn't have to go and talk with him, but I definitely felt while I was writing it, I would censor myself sometimes because I would think like, oh, my dad would hate it if I shared that, that would make him, it would upset him for me. Mm-hmm. You know, like totally. 
he was so protective of me in that way. And, but my, it was my mom. My mother was just like, you tell your story. You know, she's like, don't protect anybody. You just do your thing. And gave me a lot of space and permission to do what I needed to do. And with that, I don't break it down too specifically. I, I leave it to the, the reader's discretion. I plant some seeds and let it go mm-hmm. because I don't think I'm also not interested in, in, in fetish. I can never say uh-huh. this word fetish isms, people getting all caught up in those kinds of narratives. Yeah. Um, I don't think that's healthy, but I also really didn't want to shame it because unfortunately these kinds of traumas happen far too frequently. And I wanted to show that there are tools and yoga is only one of them that mm-hmm. I was able to, to utilize and that you can actually have a really healthy, wonderful, and amazing life, even with trauma. hundred percent. It's so important. Like, So my family was really, they were really okay with it. It was more in me than it was in them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you just sort of touched on it. And it's another thing that I think is really unique about your book is that I always used to joke that getting over my anxiety and depression that I, I I went into kind of like a deep depression in my early 20s, it took a village of healers. It oh. wasn't just yoga. It wasn't just acupuncture. It wasn't just my psychiatrist. It wasn't just my therapist. It was like everyone and everything that I encountered in that time of my life came together and, you know, continues. We continue the journey of healing from things and working through things. And I, I just love that you included so many different healers and that by doing that, that you showed that it, for most of us anyway, it's not going to be just yoga that heals us. Like there mm-hmm. are complementary practices. There are so many different things that you can do and ways that you can seek support and find help. And, you know, one of the people you talk about is Mona Miller. Yeah. I mean, I'll let you talk about her a little bit, but it, from the way that you wrote that chapter, she was such an unexpected healer in your life. You weren't seeking out this person. It was just you needed help. A friend offered her. And then she turned out to sort of be the the perfect person at that time and to help you, as you put it, stop bypassing your your feelings. I wonder if you can talk about Mona a little bit. And it, it all works out, you know, kind of perfectly. Like my nervous system had to get ready for Mona. Mm-hmm. If Mona came too early, she would have, I think that would have been traumatic. But I was practicing yoga for years now. And in the story, you know, I talk about the the mantra I, that I also practiced with, which was breathe and everything changes. Meaning that what's uncomfortable becomes comfortable with everything has its shifts if you breathe and wait long enough. But I was never really getting the, to the core of what was living within my body. But I wasn't supposed to yet. Because of my trauma, my tension was part of my survival skill. That contraction, that control helped m- me stay in high alert within my subconscious so that I never got hurt again. Releasing tension in yoga was very scary because it would, you would release the tension, you also then let go of the control. And if I don't have any evidence that what's on the other side of that control is safe, then staying contracted is going to be highly important to someone who is a survivor who's dealt with trauma. So basically practicing asana was just slowly chipping away at the tension and it was working. And then I met Mona and Mona was different. 
in that she was helping me to understand that what I was actually doing was bypassing, that by breathing and detaching, which is another word for dissociation, I was avoiding the narrative that needed excavation. And that included the things that weren't considered spiritual. It included making really good friends with my rage and my disappointment and all the betrayal and naming it and not you saying, yeah, but, and you know, everything happens or bringing even God into the equation. She was like always putting the hand up, not yet, not yet, mm. yet to the animal. And so Mona taught me anger work and it was scary because it's out of control. And I had to learn how to trust that I could lose control without losing my mind, without being unsafe, which I didn't, my nervous system didn't have any evidence of. And she really taught me how to process the big feelings and be in relationship with them, not deny them or make them bad or suppressed, but to give voice to the rage because the rage is also a huge aspect of my truth. And that the real betrayal didn't happen when I was six. The continued betrayal is the adult me not allowing the six-year-old me to find her rage and her outlet for grief. Mm -hmm. And Mona taught me in a very unconventional way how to do that, how to write fuck you letters, how to, and not send them, but to how to really also the fuck me letters. And get comfortable with like, wow, that's the unconscious voice that's inside me that's actually dictating many of my choices. Hmm. And so it's called rinsing, what Mona taught us, taught me how to do at that time and to how to get really uncomfortable with the uncomfortableness and reframe my narratives through a spiritual lens. But in time, yeah, like she taught us. You, you cannot get to the bless you until you go through the fuck you. Hmm. It was raw and it was really messy and it was some of the most transformative work I've ever done. But if anyone was watching it from the outside, they'd be totally freaked out. It was about breaking shame. Everyone worked together and you'd come into our house and people would be in closets doing their anger work. And then she would drag someone out of the closet to work with you and you would hear all of their story and they would hear yours and then they would go away. and. It was, I used to say to her, my God, like what you do should be criminal, but she would (laughs) laugh and say, because she wasn't legally a therapist, she can get away with this shit. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, No, you can do this. It was some of the most profound work I'd ever done. And it gave me so much freedom and it healed me in ways. You know, I worked with her for 11 years before she died. Oh, wow. While simultaneously doing my yoga and all of that, seeing that they had to be in relationship to each other that they work together. And that's really been my process all along. And, you know, like I said, even in writing of this book, I, I knew better than to think for one second that I could do this without mentorship. And my therapist was critical because it kicked up my OCD again, which I hadn't really experienced in a long time, but revisiting these stories because it was traumatic, it, it heightened my anxiety. Mm -hmm. And when my anxiety got heightened, if I'm not paying attention the way in which I self-soothed as a kid was through obsessive behaviors. Like for me, it's counting things in numbers of fours and eights hmm. as I share in the book. And I would notice little things 
you know, I'd walk into a wall and then turn around and like hit my other shoulder against the wall. And I thought, oh, okay, shit's coming up. Hmm. Like I'm, my little girl is really anxious and I'm looking for ways to self-soothe. So instead of indulging in the compulsion, I would just use those moments as signals that I was not okay and that I needed to process deeper. And so not only though did I have an incredible therapist who walked me through it in my family, eventually I was really blessed to find about two and a half years into my process, I found the right editor for me, which who was Linda Sparrow, who I, who I know. Oh, you know. yeah. Oh, wow. I had no idea. Yes. And Linda became way more than an editor for me. She became a true mentor. She understood because she understands yoga so well. Mm-hmm. And Linda was also really invested in contemporizing these themes and bringing them into the 21st century. She challenged me to go deeper, yet she also recognized that I was often at capacity and held me through it. She also was able to identify, like if my, she would read one of my narratives and then say, you know, this is ahimsa. Or this is Asmita. Mm-hmm. You need to talk talk about this more. And if I would get insecure about it, thinking like, no, like the traditional teachers are not going to resonate with this. They're going to think that I've gone too far outside the box. I really trusted her guidance because Linda is such a traditionalist in mm. so many ways. She really holds these traditions as something that is sacred. And if she didn't feel that I was diluting the message of yoga or taking it too far out of context, then I felt like, well, then I think everyone else will be okay with it too. So she became a true mentor for me, both in terms of the writing of the book, but also emotionally because she knew and saw the challenges that I was facing. And I relied on people like that in my life to hold that mirror up. And this did not happen in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I didn't pretend that I didn't need help. Mm-hmm. I would ask, oh God, I, I just reached out to her tirelessly. And she'd be like, no, go deeper, go deeper. You got this. That's awesome. I mean, that's a good editor is such a godsend. I mean, it, a good editor is almost like your second brain. Yeah. It's like they read your work, things just jump out at them that you've read it or written it so many times that you don't see it. Like you don't see the little diamond in there. And then they help you draw that out and they give you the confidence to draw that out. For an editor, it's really gratifying too to see someone like flourish in their work. So I'm sure she loved working with you. I've I thought about having her on the podcast so many times. Maybe this is the sign that I can get in touch with her. That's awesome. Uh, you know what? You, you please do because I think that Linda Sparrow if yoga is going to be ushered into the 21st century in a really profound way, especially because the whole back half of my book is dealing with social justice and yeah. it's dealing with themes that are are essential and need to be contextualized. Linda pushed me to go into areas of my discomfort. And if this book is good and if it is modern, it is because of Linda. And I think it, I'm not going to be the only one I know she will edit other books like my my own and from other teachers in this field. And, and I recommend her. She should. I think if there is a sea change that happens, Linda is going to be mightily 
responsible for it. So mm-hmm. please on the uh, <laughs> yeah. I want to go back to Mona for one more moment. You know, as you said, like her work was so unconventional and yet she was so intuitive and insightful. So she noticed, like you said, in that moment where you were breathing, she was trying to get you to really feel your feelings and you were breathing. And she's like, what are you doing? And you're like, well, this helps me, you know, calm my nervous system. When I'm anxious, I breathe. And she's kind of like, yeah, you're also just bypassing your actual feelings by doing that. I thought that was so insightful. And then there's one other, I'm just going to read a quote from her at the end of that chapter where she says, oh, sweetie, sometimes our pain is our purpose. And the very thing you've been running from becomes a very place from which you'll serve. It's the gift of karma. It's called empathy. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I just wonder that the the pain is our purpose, what that means to you and all the work, like you said, you do a lot of social activism, social justice work, what that means to you in the, in all of the work that you do. Yeah. I mean, it's critical to how I've shown up in the world. And I don't want to suggest that someone who's out there listening, like there's a process. I couldn't have worked with sexually abused children until I had walked through a lot of my own personal pain. Because even when I started like in the book, when I share that, I was still traumatized and I had tools. And it's still, they held a mirror up to the parts of myself that I was really afraid of, but they also held the key to my, to connecting to my grief. But if I didn't have tools already, I could have done harm to them and I could have received harm as a result. So it's important not to move too quickly Mm -hmm. into that, but who better than someone like myself to hold space for young people who deal with anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder, cutting or abuse, trauma, because I empathize with it. I know the deeper wisdom that can come from it. I know the healing. I know the maturation. I know the acceptance. I know the forgiveness. I also know the deep resistance and pain. And therefore, that's who I would hold space for. I'm not going to come at it from a place of hierarchy, of a place of distance, as if I know better. Mm -hmm. I'm going to recognize how tender the journey of healing is and walk with them with a little bit more sensitivity where so someone who's an alcoholic or who's a drug addict or who has dealt with domestic violence or god forbid has lost a child if you walk through your own pain and are able to experience a bigger spiritual picture to why things happen as they do and you get to be empowered, not in spite of the experience, but because of it, then I do think that it gives purpose to even the incomprehensible mm-hmm. yeah, and yeah. allows us to heal that much more and develop the necessary empathy that I do think will change the world. I have to care so much about my own journey and find the spaciousness within myself to forgive and the peace that comes from forgiveness to support others as they walk through their own healing pathway. And that's really what the whole second part of the book is about, is the revolution of the soul. The Mm -hmm. evolution is the revolution. And the revolution begins from within. And so the first part of the book is really giving you the tools to how do we reframe our narratives? How do we connect to our own 
limiting beliefs and flip the story, as Mona says. And the second part is how do we actually bring this into the world to create inside out social change, yet still learning the same lessons continually, because that's what will have to happen. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, you don't just get it. Mm-hmm. It's more sophisticated, as I show in the book. When I go out to serve, I still make mistakes. My service is, is helping. It's saviorism. It's still flawed, even with the best of intention. And so there's lessons there. And then I learn those lessons and I have to go up against my privilege and my what I've internalized based on my own culture. And then there's that lesson. And so the gift is what I try to show in the book is that the rate in which you get it gets shorter and shorter. And in the beginning of the book, I have no awareness whatsoever. But by the end of the book, I still make these, and I put this in air quotes, mistakes. Mm -hmm. But it's like, while I'm making the mistakes, there's a part of my brain that's like, hey, wait a second. You know, I think there's something else that's going on here. And I'm able to do repair faster and make amends faster. Those are the things that really shift. And that's really what I wanted the reader to look at, that our whole life story These are just aspects of our journey. They're not who we are, but they inform the direction of our life. And the best thing that we can do with all the experiences that happen to us along the way is to turn it around and be in service to others and support them in their own awakening. Because the more empathy that we can build, the more self-confidence that we can also support And that is the thing that will begin to shift the consciousness of this planet from one of fear into one of love and integration. Mm -hmm. It's personal integration to be able to fulfill that. Mm. Yeah. I love how you said, I can't remember how you said it, but like you're walking next to them. You're not, it's not hierarchical in the way that you try, you attempt to serve. And that for me is just really salient right now because there is a lot of necessary discussion within the yoga community specifically right now about what is the role of a teacher and there have been so many abuses over the years and what and do you have a relationship with a guru and how much do you surrender and all of these things and and you actually talk about that in the book and to me the takeaway is it's just that basis of connection i mean yoga is about connection and so if we remember to stay connected then we can help each other. We, we're not imparting some distant wisdom from some unattainable, enlightened place that the person, you know, quote unquote, below us can't achieve. It's like, we're just actually on a recent podcast, Susanna Harwood Rubin said, like, we're all just walking each other home. Like, this is what we're doing. And so if that's how you serve, that's huge. That's huge. Yeah. But I think the most important thing that we can do right now that I illustrate in the book is take accountability. And, and that was my experience in the writing of the book was to show, not tell. And that if I want to go out into the world and be in service, the first thing that I have to recognize is what beliefs have I internalized that perpetuate separation, mm-hmm. normalize those conversations. And that to me is what real leadership has to look like, especially as a, a white person of privilege. Mm-hmm. I've got to show that I've got to own that of course I'm going to be racist or sexist or homophobic or transphobic. I can't not be. Mm-hmm. Because if I'm explaining through the book that our bodies remember everything and that our experience in the world is going to be the sum totals of all in which 
has been repressed within our cellular tissues. Well, that goes for my ancestor, my cultural trauma, ancestral trauma, historical trauma, the beliefs of my grandmother, the beliefs of my ch- of my church or temple, what I learned in school. All of that information lives in my body. And therefore, in a moment of fear, like a, a chapter 12 of my book, you know, when I when I go up against my own racism, in those moments, the rational part of my brain is going to shut down. The reactive part of my brain is going to get ignited. And all of that embodied information, the prejudice, the big bigotry, the stereotyping, all of that is going to come to the surface and influence my choice in that moment. This is something that just has to become commonplace. Mm-hmm. That anyone is like, instead of being like, oh my God, no, I'm not racist. It's like, mm-hmm. of course you are. You can't not be. And it didn't take you five minutes to become that. It took lifetimes. Therefore, it's not going to take five minutes to unpack. Mm-hmm. But we change it unless we we see it. And what I want to invite people to do in the book is just to be like, okay, yep, that's me. And if I'm committed to creating peace, as we often say in the practice of yoga, this is what it looks like. You know, we've got to identify the ways in which we contribute to peacelessness. And we do every single day. Mm-hmm. And if I'm not going to own it, then why would I expect anyone else to? So that was my commitment in the book is like, no, 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 I'm not going to shame my community. I'm going to just expose my own humanity. And my hope is that it makes them feel comfortable to do the same. Yeah. That was a great part of the book. Really, I agree, like really important part of the book. And I I mean, I like that you tell the story that you tell because in that chapter, which is where you kind of notice your internalized racism in a very like clear way, because it makes the rest of us feel less ashamed about our own issues and and like, quite frankly, like repressed issues too. Because like you said, we all want to we want to believe that we're perfect and like, I'm not racist and I've never had a, you know, and I've never been bigoted against anyone and I'm a good person. And it's like, yeah, you can be a good person and also have real issues that you need to confront and acknowledge. Yeah. I say in the book, like we need to, again, it's about dismantling our identity and we have to be less attached to our identity as a good person and instead look to become a whole person with faults and graces. Mm-hmm. And that's something I had to do, which, and I didn't want to, I did not want to include chapter 12. I wrote that chapter and Linda and I went back and forth. We were both freaked out about it because I was, a, once again, I had to go up against my own ego. I did not want to be judged. I didn't, I was yeah. more attached to my identity as being righteous than I was to being real. And I thought, I, Once again, I'm like, I have to include this chapter because what it models is me dismantling that identity and inviting people to do that for themselves. But I didn't enjoy it. Mm -hmm. It wasn't something that came to me effortlessly, but I was being confronted with the very teachings that I was asking people to deal with. And it goes back to my prayer. You know, I asked for this level of clarity and this level of commitment, and this is what it looked like for me to not be complicit to the very thing in which I was asking others to change. Even in the chapter where I talk about the abuse of power that goes on within the yoga community and I talk about the Tabi Joyce, I did not want to include that. 
I knew I would get hit back really hard. I knew that some of my mentors would be really disappointed in me. Hmm. There was this one moment where I thought, I am a part of the culture of secrecy Yeah, that I'm suggesting is so abusive that unless I go towards it and own it and take the hits where they land, then I am a part of it. And I am just as bad, if you will, as everyone else who contributes to these power dynamics. And those moments were so hard, but I had to walk my talk. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I can't, I will not lie and say that it was, uh, there was nothing self-righteous about it. I was very clear, like, I don't want to do this. I don't want, I need this like a hole in my head. And yet I knew like, nope, this is what has to happen. This is not about the readership. It's really about my own integrity Mm -hmm. and living this truth. So it's, it was not fun. You just got back from a a book tour. Did you get any positive or negative response to those two parts of the book, the Patabi Joyce part or the, the chapter 12, where you talked about noticing the, your own racism in a, in a, it was a specific situation, but did you get any feedback? I have to say that since I've released this book, um, which was, I think, September 3rd, all the things that I was so afraid of and psychologically prepared for, like I was really prepared for pushback. It didn't happen. I got so much support, so much just, I'm, I'm a little overwhelmed actually by the amount of of positive feedback that I've received over this book since I released it. I was too close to the content to know how it was going to be understood. And I'm relieved to tell you the truth. Before I released the book, though, I had reached out to a variety of, of leaders, mentors, teachers in the community. And there were there was some challenges. That was really hard. Hmm. It was really painful, actually. And it I felt I was afraid it was setting the, it was preparing me for what I was about to be hit with. Hmm. And it gave me the opportunity, though, to really hone my messaging and to deal with the discomfort in my own body about feeling misunderstood or feeling like I let someone down. So it gave me time to reflect on how that felt and to respond, you know, from a real centered place. But the truth is, I haven't really had to deal with it ever since then. Huh. The students have, and just anyone who's just reading the book, it has been more of thank you than anything else. Yeah, that's good. I'm, uh, yeah. I, I'm sorry that you had to go through that when you reached out to mentors and leaders. That's, yeah. Because I actually felt like you dealt with the section about Patabi Joyce so well, and it it rang so true for me too. I practiced Ashtanga in the 90s as well. And I remember my Ashtanga teacher coming back from Mysore and talking about his adjustments and that she also was someone who basically said, like, get your hands off of me. And he just said, bad lady, bad lady, you know, you don't, you don't come back. And I think back on that time and I feel like I was totally complicit. Like I just basically decided, okay, I'm not going to go to Mysore because I'm not going to subject myself to that. But I didn't do anything to create change. I didn't do anything to, you know, and I I felt like that was kind of what your story was, was just like, I protected myself and I moved on. 
because we didn't know what else to do at that time. Yep. And I just, I couldn't continue. I wrote that whole chapter without including those first, you know, the first few pages around, around Patabi. I could feel it in my body, the hypocrisy that I was avoiding. I was talking around it. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, oh, fuck, I, I have to do this and I'll, I'll deal with the fallout. And, but thankfully it, it, it really hasn't, it hasn't been bad. Mm -hmm. I also would think there was, there was a few women that I thought about who over the years have come forward to talk about Patabi, not just Patabi, other teachers who have abused their power. And I've watched them be vilified online. Hmm. I saw them get ostracized, lose their jobs, their source of income. And I remember thinking when they would come forward, I would read it and be like, they're not lying. We all know this is true. We most of us experienced it, and and I certainly talked about Patabi over the years, not to this degree, but you know anyone who cared to ask, I would be very clear about what my experience was. But I wrote that chapter, that those pages about Patabi for those women because when I sat back, I thought to myself, I'm not going to lose my job. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to sully my reputation. I might lose some dear friends. And, and if that's the case, then they were never truly friends. And, and I'm going to have to be okay with that too. But it requires someone like me who's in a position of power, who does have a certain amount of a, a platform that gives them authority. How dare I not take that hit so that somebody whose life is dependent upon them teaching their 12 classes a week and things like that. So they don't have to take that hit. Mm -hmm. Like that has to be my role. And anyone who's in a position of power, we have to be the ones who tell the truth and who confront these injustices so that someone else, especially people on the margins, don't have to take on that burden. And that's why I wrote that chapter. I didn't enjoy it, but I'm, I'm glad now right. that I did it and that it's done. Yeah. You are home from your book tour. Your your book is out into the world. You mentioned at the top of the interview that you know you thought about growing older and just like what's my role going to be in the community moving forward. What's changed for you, or or where do you see yourself focusing on in the next few years? Uh, what the book has given me is a level of confidence uh, and uh, maturity. Like I I feel something has definitely shifted within myself over the last four years. It's what I prayed for and how it's going to unfold. I don't quite know. I know that I'm going to turn the book into an online curriculum, maybe a six month or a year long training, something like that. I haven't figured that out yet. I'm going to work on that in January and February. And I also know that what I would like to do is to support other teachers in finding their voice, their authentic voice, mm -hmm. not my voice imposed onto them, but to help extract out of them their truth, their narratives, and the tools to help them to reframe them and support them as they show up and leaders in their com own community. Mm -hmm. you know, I like to do more mentorship in that capacity and find ways to stay home more with my family. I'm going to be a grandma in February. Wow, really? Congratulations. Yeah. My stepdaughter is having a baby. And so oh, that's I, so exciting. It is, you know, I am going to have a granddaughter and family is really important to, to Al and I. And 
especially her being, you know, new to this, you know, to our tribe, I want to make sure that there's really strong roots and foundation and love. And so I want to be home more. And and I maybe write a second book, believe it or not. That's awesome. Yay. That's great. That makes me happy to hear that. It really does. Because I think that, I mean, like as hard as writing is, and I, I agree with you. I mean, I, I, I've spent a lot of my career writing, but it's hard. But as hard as it is, it is so good for processing things. And it's so cathartic. And it helps other people. It helps other people, you know? So so that's great. I will look forward to that book. And I can't imagine anyone better suited to helping people find their voice than you. <laughs> that sounds great. And thanks so much for talking today, Sean. I love talking to you. Yeah, I love talking to you too. Thank you very much. And give kisses to Ginger. Thanks as always for listening. Sean was one of my very first guests when I started the podcast. So I will link on the show notes page to that original interview we did together. You can find that at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 170. And you can also find Sean's book at all of the outlets where you usually find books, but you can also go to her website, seancorn.com. And she has a series of videos on there that I think you will enjoy. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a five-star rating and review, and we appreciate it. Until next week, enjoy your practice.